0: to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida!
1: Thank you, Matthew Arder. Welcome back to another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I are joined by actor, improviser, writer, Steve Pernick. He's been on the show before, and uh, this week's episode is uh, kind of a return to the old school, very special episodes. Because it deals with the Holocaust. Yay! (laughs) Never not funny in a sitcom. Anyway, Matthew and I wanted to include Steve because he is Jewish, and we certainly thought that he would have uh, a few things to say and contribute to the discussion, and uh, he certainly did. Now, if you recall from last time, Steve has the mind of a comedy writer. It never stops working. Being with him is like having a little piece of the Catskills from the late 50s, early 60s right in the room with you. It is just, it's amazing how sharp and witty he is. I always enjoy the time I spend with him. So let's get to it. This week we watched season seven, episode 18, called Concentration, which had an original air date of February 8th, 1986. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with Steve Pernick.
2: Good morning, Steve Pernick. Good morning, David Almedia. <laughs>
1: Well, good morning, Matthew. We're recording early because Mr. Pernick has a busy schedule as a local hustling artist and a- an active parent who still has time to yeah. bake his own bread.
2: Oh, uh, isn't that's something. <laughs> Yom Kippur begins tonight, by the way. That's that's the day we're recording, so I, I'm I'm going to have to like stuff my face today because I can't eat starting at sundown for 24 hours.
1: Okay, I was just gonna say, explain what what Yom Kippur is. That is that Yom New Kippur Year. No, Rosh Hashanah like, is New, New Year, right?
2: Yeah, Rosh Hashanah just happened. This is what's called the Day of Atonement. It's sort of like you know, like if you know anything about confessional, it's like a year's worth of confessional. Very solemn. I'm a piece of poo, and I won't eat to show that I I need to deny myself pleasure today. So uh, yeah, that's that's
3: but that's the that, beauty that's of what it Jews. is. It's a
2: fasting holiday.
3: That's the beauty of the what's Jews. They get it over and. 24 hours, this it's like, I'm just going <laughs> to confess today. I'm terrible today. And then yeah. we're good. Mm-hmm. I'm In just mode. glad you're here, Steve, because there's nothing I like more than um, waking up at the butt crack of dawn and talking about the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> there
2: It is Thank <laughs> never you. It was, not funny waiting for totally worth waiting for.
3: Um, honestly,
1: yes. uh, uh, a problematic yet lovely episode. I have a, I have a very wide pendulum swing of things I love and things that I hate about this episode. Um, but all in the end, it it has to be a love episode because Nehemiah Persoff, come on,
2: Nehemiah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, why the don't last I? Last time it was uh, uh, Natalie's Yiddish grandmother. Yes, right. It was, yeah. It.
1: yeah. That was a couple years yep. ago, several seasons oh, ago, right. but yeah. But we had the, the titan of the Yiddish theater, Molly Picon, And uh, now this time we get Nehemiah Persoff. So let's start with the nuts and bolts stuff here. We have this episode called Concentration. That is, that is not related to the fun classic game show that we all watch on the Buzzer channel. No, no, we learn this is Concentration as in camp. And uh, season seven, episode 18, and the original air date was February 8th of 1986. It was written by Martha Williamson. Martha would uh, go on to write eight episodes total. This is her first, her first foray into the facts of life. And uh, she will be with this show till the end of the series, uh, writing episodes all the way until Big Apple Blues, which is one of the last episodes of season nine, one of the attempted backdoor pilots to get uh, Natalie into New York City with Richard Grieco and David Spade. And uh, she also worked on, uh, after this, a a, a TV movie and then a TV series and then a series of TV movies called Signed, Sealed, Delivered that were on the Hallmark Movie Channel. And I guess it's about postal workers trying to get the mail to... People, I don't- okay. In a small
3: town when they're used to delivering mail in a, in a big town and now they realize how wonderful it is to live in a town with eight people in it and <laughs> uh, how much and easier it is to deliver the mail. Turn their
1: back on the big city hustle and bustle.
3: Yeah.
1: I'm gonna stay here and live in shittsville But she would go on to be the executive producer and head writer of Touched by an Angel for the entire run of that series, which was, uh, I think, nine years, what? 211 episodes. She was also executive producer for a series called Promised Land. That was a 70-episode series. that starred Gerald McCraney. This is after Simon and & Simon and after Major Dad, I think I heard of it, Promised Land. Celeste Holm was in it.
3: Oh, Jesus.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's like, I thought she was dead.
3: A real young cast. Her and Gerald McCraney, for Christ's
1: sake. (laughs) We're skewing to the millennials. Hmm. And this episode was directed by John Boab. Same as before. Same director. Yeah, there are only two episodes this season coming up that John Boab did not direct. That would be episode 21, The Candidate. And episode 22, Big Time Charlie. So I don't know what's up with that. And if you look at the production order, that is the 20th and 23rd episode recorded for the season. So it's not like he did a Charlotte Ray and peaced out a little early before the season was over. So I don't quite know what that's all about.
3: Steve, are you all chewed up?
2: <laughs> I am. I, I have just watched an episode of the Facts of Life I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've ever seen an episode this deep into the series. I, I I didn't, it's not a series I ever really hung with and know incredibly well, but I I know stuff from the first few seasons, the Molly Ringwald season, wasn't that exciting. And um, <laughs> so everybody's old. Everybody's a little too old for, are they supposed to still be in high school? I don't even know where we are at this point.
1: Uh, no. We, uh, no, we are definitely not in high school anymore. No, uh, we're an
3: AARP at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in fairness, one of them is indeed still in high school, Steve. Yes. So,
1: Matthew, I think this means that we need to discuss with Steve the ages of the girls.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) welcome. And who's this new boy? And who's
2: the baby? I don't know anybody. I know. You're so right! It is really,
1: for where we are now is, as you see, Mrs. Garrett, Charlotte Ray is on her way out of the series. She's um, trying to lessen her role. And at this point, she was in most of the episodes of season seven, but here is where we get the perfect quick cameo, obviously taped it another time earlier. And just, you know, three lines in and out, collect the paycheck. Uh, But yeah, Blair and Joe are juniors in college at this point, so they are both 21 years old. Uh, Natalie is a, uh, she would be a freshman in college, but she's not going to school. She's taking some time off, but Natalie is 18, and Tootie is a senior in high school. She is 16, and Andy is the 12-year-old boy who lives nearby he applied for a job kind of as a joke when they need we're saying they needed a man to help around to help with lugging and man stuff and this little boy comes in and he ends up helping out their business and they're just like he's so freaking adorable and he is the son And you know what
2: he had good comic timing i'm not gonna lie i thought the kid was actually pretty damn good i don't know know who he is no
1: he is Mackenzie Astin, that's the son of John Astin and Patty Duke.
2: Oh, my God. John Astin's brother, then.
1: Yes, absolutely. And yet now we know where he gets the comic timing from and why we have been arguing that uh, we don't have George Clooney, sadly, in this episode. But we're like, uh, our favorite things in season seven of The Facts of Life are Mackenzie Astin and George Clooney. There you
2: go. Well yeah, yeah. He's, he's 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 pedigree and and it kind of showed. He really had good comic timing. It was like, nice delivery, boy. Yep. No. Nope. We
1: we love him. That's he's he consistently delivers absolutely on this. Um so Steve this is the time when we like to put our guest on the spot and ask if you would please provide a one to two sentence synopsis of the entire show something like uh, you know the brief description you might read in a TV guide and now with Matthew as my co-host we do have the added layer of if your short description runs too long you will be judged and critiqued instantaneously
3: now no, think TV guide Steve think TV guide this is...
2: On the way to accept an award, Blair gets stuck in an elevator, and has a surprising encounter with a Holocaust survivor.
3: There it is.
1: There it is. Bravo! Don't need a close-up box for that shit. Good. Good work. Very,
3: Very good. good.
1: So, are we ready to get into this? And we will talk more about uh, the Holocausty stuff when we get to when we get Yay. to that point in the show. But thank you for doing this, Steve, because Matthew and I wanted to be sure we had someone to call us out if we started saying insensitive Gentile things.
2: You need cover. You need some Jewy cover. So that's <laughs> what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. But so you don't Matthew... get called out. You don't get all those 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 nasty letters from your seven uh, listeners. How dare you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to oversell.
3: No, so don't, don't worry. Our our seven our seven listeners are all actually anti-Semites. So <laughs> well, that's perfect
2: then. So it works
1: out. <laughs> Woo! Okay, off to a great start, kids.
2: All right. Oh, we kid because we, kid we love.
1: Yes. Uh, oh, and so to answer your last question, you didn't catch that the baby is Blair's sister. Mm-hmm. You didn't catch okay. on because on Halloween, Blair's mother showed up uh, with the surprise news that she is pregnant at 52. And uh, she wasn't sure forty-two.
3: She was... she was forty-two. No. Yes, David. If, you're oh my 52. God, that's right. Like
2: a stretch, David. Fifty-two seems like well, a real stretch. Yeah, to say beautiful. that to
3: Adrian Barbeau. Oh my God! Now we have <laughs> now we've got a new segment called Matthew's Ages of the Girls. <laughs> now, oh, oh God! I've become you, David. You have don't don't age our dear fudge. No, not fudge, Marge, her
1: name is Marge say the actress that plays Blair's mother. Anyway, yes, at, at the ripe young age of 42, Blair's mother turns up pregnant and isn't sure if she wants to have the baby and Blair convinces her to do it. So that was October. That sounds
2: like an emotionally charged episode.
1: Oh, it was very special.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Very special, yeah. And then uh, our very special Christmas episode was the baby being born. Two months. Whoa after her mother announced that she was pregnant without a baby bump in sight. Listen, now, when you're
2: 42, you better do it fast.
1: Yeah, well, she's rich. She paid the, uh, the expedited fast pass uh, gestation uh, <laughs> thing. And then now here we are February 8th and it's you know not even Valentine's Day. And here we have a six month old child. You, you're the yeah. parent here, Steve. How big, how old did you say that baby is?
2: Uh, yeah I'd say 6 months not a bad guess. It does certainly doesn't seem like a newborn or infant anymore. I mean it's, it's 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 got a little heft. Maybe 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 even older than 6 months.
1: Yeah. If this baby was 7 weeks by the calendar from when she was a 7 week old baby, 7 weeks, they're just a little crying, pissing, peeing, pooping, eating machine. There there's nothing happening. They're just a little yeah little little shrimp sitting around where you're like okay would you get to be three or four months old so that this can get interesting
2: now this kid's a stalker you know that word stalker
1: stalker no Ooh, ooh. this is a jewish thing talk to us steve talk what is a it's
2: sh-taka? a big bruiser stalker oh okay and um, and get smart there was like a henchman who they called stalker he was ah! It was like sometimes you you don't even know oh that was a Yiddish thing that I didn't even know about so mm. yeah this kid's a, this kid's beefy Good yeah
1: disorder. with a, you know, like a stocky person when you say a person is stocky
2: yeah wow. or, or big enough even as a stalker
1: interesting so let's start getting into the microscopic dissection uh, <laughs> what we've got going on here is the first scene is at the house um, we have Blair and the others don't know who's minding the store. The over our head store which you didn't even get to see Steve the color explosion Spencer's gift store that they run these days adjacent oh to the house mm-hmm. uh, but Blair is trying to remember a speech she's about to give and uh, she's also simultaneously taking care of her seven week
2: old sister
1: they don't say how old she is so we'll just assume the baby is the age that the baby is because uh, mom did like her to...
2: delivery job and got out of Dodge. Mom's nowhere to be found now.
1: Yeah. She went off to, where did she go to? Bolivia. Um, Bolivia. That's right. Mother was, you know, oh, this baby has been dominating my life for six fucking months. Mama needs a break. So true, witch, uh, true rich, white lady style. She's like, I'm off. It's a wonder she didn't ship the baby off to military school, really and truly. Uh, <laughs> She'd so be in the infantry.
2: <laughs> there it is. Sheboygan. Done. <laughs> work so, done. So-
3: I am not gonna start off political, but this first scene is I, I I was throwing things at the TV, David. Don't even get me started. that Blair is like, oh, she deserved a day, a few days off. Moms don't get days off, Blair. Nope. And that is why maybe she didn't want to
0: have this kid. (laughs) (laughs) You made her have. You made
2: your mother have a fucking baby.
0: And now you said, I'll be there for you, mom. And you're about to haul this kid off on Mrs. Garrett. Screw you,
3: Blair. Oh, that is all I'm saying. Wow. Screw you. I never wow. thought I'd say those words, but I was very offended by Blair.
2: Oh, oh! How many how many seasons are we in now?
1: We're in season seven. It will season end seven after and nine, was,
2: and after season seven, Matthew was still surprised that Blair is selfish. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. You should have caught on to that like at the seventh line of the first of the pilot.
3: Oh. I love Blair and I will defend her till the day I I die. But I was not a fan of the beginning of this episode for several reasons. And that being one of them, like yeah. just, you're creating the story. You don't have to create that the baby is a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, I only have
1: after- three hours sleep and oh, well, she yeah. won't. She won't stop crying. She's a fucking
3: baby. Jesus. Yeah. And this is why a 42 year old woman didn't want one. This is why Blair and you're 21 and you're fucking worn out. Imagine how your 42 year old mom feels. She had to go to Bolivia to get away from this bastard. Uh, this
2: opening scene of this episode had such a ripple effect on the way women approached motherhood for the centuries. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think it also would have a ripple effect on the way people invent things and are credited and honored for doing such.
2: Right, because she's getting an award for inventing contoured top sheets.
1: Yeah, she's getting an award. The whole thing is, where is Mrs. Garrett? Because Mrs. Garrett was supposed to be there to look after this fucking kid so that Blair could go into the city of New York to receive a plaque from the League of Small Independent Business Persons.
2: Super plausible, very plausible. So, oh, oh, even
1: better. Even better, Joe, who is unimpressed with this and a little bit pissy about it. Joe's um, whole thing about it is... (sighs) She comes up with this stupid idea. She writes a ridiculous paper, and this league comes out of nowhere to give her a plaque. So she's getting a plaque for an idea invention. It's it's contour top sheets, but nobody is buying the idea. Nobody is producing it or selling it. It's just oh, great idea, have a plaque. What in
3: the holy fuckdom of fucks? is happening here is what I'd like to know. And when has Blair ever, ever mentioned, you know what? I'm really interested in inventing stuff. And yeah. uh, You know what bothers me? Contoured sheets. So let me, let me work on that. Like suddenly, like suddenly she's an entrepreneur inventor that uh, I make her get an award for selling a piece of art. Yeah. (laughs) we, <laughs> something we, that has something to do with her character.
1: You read my brain. You read my brain. Because later she does say to the elevator man, to Sam, she's like, yep, well, getting this award's kind of a thing. It's me showing that I've accomplished something on my own. It proves I'm becoming independent. And now I'm going to start working my way up the ladder to corporate success. And it's like, wait, di- didn't we, uh, we've, Steve, I'm sorry, Steve, to catch you up here. Uh good. We're talking stuff that you aren't familiar with. But we, we've we had this thing of Blair being sort of fast-tracked by her corporate dad and by her rich mom that, well, she's clearly going to be an executive. She's going to be involved in the business world and work on Wall Street or Madison Avenue or something. And Blair really has more creative and artistic aspirations. And we were kind so of- she's,
2: she's actually pushed back in other episodes of not wanting this. Exactly, and we
1: thought she was on the path to exploring that, and then it just gets abandoned and not talked about. And now we've got this going on here. And and can we talk about, gentlemen, would you please, Steve, you're our guest, I'll let you speak first. I say contour top sheets. Yeah. Describe that product for me, please. As you I imagine. have no idea
2: what, what that. Is. I have <laughs> no idea what, what that is. I understand what a fitted sheet is. I understand what a flat top sheet is. Contoured top sheets. I, I, I mean, I don't even have a visual picture. I don't know what, what, what does that mean? Is it, I, I do, do you go for a fitting? Do you wear it like pants? Um, I, what the hell is a, a contoured top sheet? Um, and, but the thing is in hearing it, I just didn't care. <laughs> I just, you know, it's, that's More the important. truth of it. All right, fine. Contoured top sheet. Okay. Whatever the hell you want to tell me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and by the end of the episode, Honestly, as I said, the pendulum swing of what I hate and what I love, the hate is at the beginning, the love is at the end. So we end it on a love note. And that's good because by the time we're done with this episode, you're like, you know what? It really doesn't fucking matter. They just had to come up with something ridiculous to get us in this situation so that we could watch this performance. And, uh, you know, it's I I almost forgive them. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so
3: moving down the line. Matthew, what do you imagine a contour top sheet is? I assumed it was something that was um, like, you know how the top sheets are always just a big flat sheet. I assumed it was something like that was sewn together at the ends to fit over the edge of the bed. Like your top sheet then like was fitted to your bed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. At the bottom, that's what I assumed, but. <laughs> I was, I was more ready to punch Tootie in the face when she was making those faces at that baby from behind. And the director wasn't like, how about we put you in the baby's face? If you're all going to be in a baby's face, there's nothing more calming to a child than three people going, Dah! in their face. <laughs> yeah, Stop crying, please. <laughs> Fuck off, dude. You're not even in the... Ugh. You yeah. know how I feel about Tootie. You yeah. know how I feel about Tootie. Yeah,
1: Matthew has big problems with the character of Tootie this season <laughs> and uh, and all the others. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Matthew. I feel like it would either be like a fitted sheet that is only fitted at the bottom, but mm-hmm. loose flowing at the top, or yeah. uh, it would have, you know, like your, your hospital corners. It would have a pre-sewn in hospital corner that yeah. makes it fit over the bottom, but is loose on the top. And and again, I'm like, so where do your feet go? If it's not made of Jersey stretchy material, how is it not too tight over your feet and your ankles? And um, gentlemen,
2: I am 100% sure that already we have put more thought and <laughs> into this discussion, into Concord Top Sheets than anybody involved in this production, <laughs> including the writer.
1: Definitely um, the writer's room, yeah. Yeah, but you know what, guys? Blair is not the only inventor in the family. Oh, no, no. Joe is pissy about it because Joe is actually kind of jealous because Joe reveals to us that she has a journal full of really useful inventions.
2: We've known that from many previous episodes, right? I mean, constantly you're talking about Joe and her inventions. Uh,
1: Sure. You want to believe that, Steve? Go right ahead. It's not true. (laughs) But Joe talks about things like a magnetic toothpaste cap. At the award ceremony, they talk about uh, electric shoe trees that preheat your shoes. And Joe's like, what a stupid idea. Electric shoe trees. Mine had batteries. And then uh, the other one mentioned the, the holy trifecta comedy of threes is pet-proof medicine caps. And Joe's in the bathroom and you hear shouted from the bathroom, I had that idea first. And yeah.
2: oh, a musical pacifier you put in the baby's mouth so you don't hear it crying. But babies don't cry when they have pacifiers in their mouth. Oh
1: wow! Oh. oh wacky! Oh Joe, that's <laughs> why you're a failure. <laughs> so this is all set up to get them to. Um, oh oh, and the last thing is when Mrs. Garrett does call in and they do speak to her briefly, she says that she and Beverly Ann are in the Winnebago. They're on their way home. Like Beverly Ann is apparently going to be dropping her off. Beverly Ann yeah. doesn't show up to live there for several more weeks. So we knew Mrs. Garrett was leaving the, the season. She was kind of going to be going away to be with Beverly Ann to comfort her as her marriage has just recently broken up and it was a bad situation. So now suddenly she and Beverly Ann are traveling together. Beverly Ann, by the way, is Cloris Leachman, who will be joining the cast Aww. next season when Charlotte Ray departs. We
3: don't know that yeah, yet. Yeah, we
2: didn't so. see her in this episode.
3: Yeah, we don't know that yet. We didn't see that her yet. in this episode.
2: No. No. We, and we and, got no Beverly Ann. Just mention of a Beverly Ann, but no seeing it. Mention true. of Winnebago, but no seeing it. How quickly can we do this? Stand here by a payphone. We'll shoot the shot. God, you're out in five minutes.
3: Yep. You're and, in Jersey. And, let's, and let's nail the payphone to a tree. Let's <laughs> not even give her a fucking phone booth, for Christ's sake. We've already relegated her to fucking Suzanne Summers 3's company drama level of, of performance yeah. by having a phone call for that last 30 seconds. It took her an hour to maybe film, for Christ's sake. But- She's supposed
2: to be lost in New Jersey. And as someone who grew up for New Jersey, it's just filled with uh, trees and pay phones attached to them.
1: But mm. with Mrs. Garrett unable to uh, be there to babysit, um, Blair is like, well, you know, the baby, typically doesn't cry when Blair holds her, that we've already established this sisterly connection. So she's like, she's just gonna scream if I leave her here with you guys. So get the pram and we're gonna head on out and all going together, I'm bringing this baby with me to this awards banquet to receive this plaque. Cause God knows, you know, lack of childcare is not a reason to miss this. This is too goddamn important.
2: And can I say at this moment too, there's a setup, but your speech, is coming right at the time of the baby's feeding. Well, I hope that it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And is it ever paid off? Is it ever paid off? No. I mean, it, it never even comes up. Like what, a, why, why did they tee that up? It was just so weird that we hear this and then nothing.
3: Yeah. And well, similarly, was- Andy does bring up the fact they do hear the baby crying in the elevator. And they're like, oh, it's time for feeding. And they're like, uh oh, okay. where's the bottle? And Andy goes, I've got the bottle out here. But still, not mm-hmm. worth the setup, not worth the joke. No it's not payoff. But my, it quest- no payoff. my question for you, Steve, as the only person with a child in here, Um, Mm -mm. when they say like, is that a thing for babies? I don't know anything about children. I hated myself until I was about 22 and then I'm still kind of iffy, but when, like, when they're like, oh, she has to eat at seven o'clock, is that like 702 won't work like for a kid? You know what I mean? Like when your baby is, you
2: know, I can only speak to my one kid. That wasn't our experience. My experience was he was hungry when he was hungry and, 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 you know, Uh and they tell you. And especially in infancy, they cry, they let, you know, what is it? Are you wet? Are you hungry? We'll figure out what the crying is about and you and you take care of it at that moment.
0: OK,
3: because I've I just never understood. I didn't know if that was actually a thing where it's like exactly at 7 yeah. p.m. She goes off like an alarm clock, like oh, 702. Yeah. She can't eat at 702, for Christ's sake. This is the dire <laughs> no. straits we're in right now.
2: Yeah, this kids, kids don't don't live by the clock. They live by what their body tells them when it tells them.
1: Yeah, and you this know? doesn't sound like 1980s parenting. I could see a parent nowadays, a contemporary parent being, no, my little precious little Amber Regina, she has to eat at 7 and it has to be on the dot because at 7.04 is when we have our appointment with our uh, postnatal astrologer and then a baby yoga <laughs> class happens at 11.15. So, you know, the 1980s, we were still in the... Parenting was one step away from child abandonment, really. In yeah. this Even for rich people. Let's get real. Um, so we then move on to the hotel, uh, the lobby of the hotel where this award is being presented. Uh, yeah. Very beautiful. It's uh, lovely. It's called the Palace Hotel, which is weird because there really is a Palace Hotel in New York City on Madison Avenue. And it was a series of old little houses from the 1880s that they connected and built a skyscraper adjacent to and connected it. And that opened in 1980. It was a fairly recent uh, thing in New York City in this 1986 setting. Uh, but they still call it the Palace Hotel. And uh It's supposed to be big and ornate with columns and you see the gilding and two old school style fancy elevators. And Andy's reading the pamphlet saying, wow, this is one of the greatest European style hotels. One of the oldest in New York is exemplifying the 19th century architecture and it's being demolished.
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, it was.
1: Oh, progress. Yeah. Not untrue. Not untrue. Not as bad as LA. In LA, it's like, is that building older than 10 years? Raise it tear it down but um uh, and it's such
2: an old building that the elevators still have an elevator operator who's got a hold-up chair yeah which is actually kind of
1: precious yeah really so an old woman comes by to uh admire the baby and blair's like touch her and die and you get the old woman the the hilarity the old woman reacting to being told to
3: go fuck herself And and maybe not the best threat to give a woman when you're about to get stuck in an elevator with a with the holocaust survivor <laughs> like maybe maybe you know maybe it could have been like please ixnay on the aching tay or something yeah. you know but yeah. it didn't have to be touch her and die oh yeah. jesus but, but it was certainly a way to exemplify
1: how Blair is at the end of her rope. Yeah. She is like, Oh, looking after a baby. And Oh, a speech that I clearly can't read off of a piece of paper or a card. I have to have it memorized. Oh, Oh, sitcoms.
2: <laughs> she became Paul Lind when you did her. Like, oh, <laughs> I have to have it memorized. Oh, a, little oh, oh, oh. a
1: little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Yep. I'm not apologizing. Uh, So one funny thing about this actress who plays the the elderly woman is how she is credited. Her name is Georgia Schmidt. She has 48 credits and a 24-year career character actress. Looks like she started late, like in her late 50s. Um, Mm -hmm. After this, she would do three episodes of Highway to Heaven, and apparently she would retire until her passing in uh, 1997 at the age of 92. (sighs) The only reason I bring her up is if you look at her IMDb, Literally, the character she plays: uh, elderly woman, granny, little old lady, old lady, old woman, grandma. It's like okay, we we see the, the she knew her lane, she knew her groove, and stuck to mm-hmm. it. And good on her.
2: Yeah, in business and in life, she was on the highway to heaven. I think at that ah. <laughs> uh,
1: And we're not talking the Michael Landon show. <laughs> So then the elevator doors open up and we get to meet Sam, the older gentleman who is the elevator operator.
3: And you love him the minute he is on screen. The doors open and you're going, ah! And I was (laughs) like, oh, I love him already. Uh,
1: (laughs) Sam. Wonderful. Sam is played by the amazing character actor Nehemiah Persoff. This man, I don't think we've ever had a a guest actor on the Facts of Life where their credits exceed 200. He has 206 credits in a 55 year career. And I will not be talking about him in the past tense because he is still alive. He's 102 years old. Damn. I don't think he's still working, but damn. Still, he with plays us. a
2: Holocaust survivor, and he's actually a Facts of Life survivor. So that's, a, <laughs> that's a... <laughs>
1: uh he it's survived. Amazing. He survived the bad writing in the early half of this show to go on yeah. and do this. But um, he is one of those where he does not have a series. He's got some movie, memorable movie roles. There's no career defining series or role or anything. Right. Uh, other than I would argue. The two biggest ones to my generation are he's the voice of Papa Mouskowitz in the American Tale animated movies. Uh, and homosexuals will instantaneously recognize him from playing the part of Yentl's father in Barbara Streisand's Yentl.
2: Yeah, there you go. That's fairly iconic. But it, I mean, even if you don't know uh, all of his roles, he's one of those guys who's just instantly recognizable. You're you like, will see I've him seen him, him go, in everything. I know I've I've seen this guy a hundred times, yeah. Yes. Or two hundred and
1: yeah. And he has that thing that I love. I call it the Bernie Coppell career, where he has a lot of series uh, like uh, Gunsmoke, Marcus Welby, McCloud, uh, Fantasy Island, Barney Miller, where he's on it multiple times and playing different characters. Right. I love that. That's like Bernie Capel on Bewitched, where the true master character actor is the one who makes multiple appearances on a show in different parts. And I I love that. That's that is a career. If I had lived a different life where I aspired to be a Hollywood film TV actor, that is the career I would I would dream of and wish for.
2: This year, slowly on Peacock, I've been going through Columbo episodes. My plan oh. is to watch all the covers. And I'm only on season three. But in season one, season two, and now season three, Robert Culp has been the murderer and three different murderers. So um, <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. Like It's so weird how they just keep appearing. You know, hey, we like that guy. Let's bring him back and have him kill somebody. Yeah. Um, hilarious. Sure.
3: We, we well, that's because that. shows like that were often um, produced or inv- involved people from like old school Hollywood, like like Murder She Wrote had all these. It's like, oh, where's Janet Lee? Oh, yeah, I know. You know, we can get her into this. And um, I love former
2: studio, former film studio stars are now stuck doing television or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun. Mm-hmm. Well, so Nehemiah and I I have... off uh, we meet him just just briefly because Blake Blair can't get on the elevator. The 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 baby just made a big dookie apparently, <laughs> and um, everybody That's... has to go upstairs while she cleans up the poops.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So then he comes back down, he gets her, and uh, while well, it's just Blair and Bailey, the ba- baby's name is Bailey, and him in the elevator, and of course the elevator gets stuck it's like oh "Oh, wacky sitcom premise
2: that poor old elevator that he has named over the years Bessie
1: named it Bessie Bessie. yes and uh there's a little tiny bit cut from syndication if anyone listening watched the um the the daily motion version they cut the bit where it's like maybe I should sound the alarm so he opens the door press button alarm will sound and he presses it nothing happens
2: in case of emergency, sound the alarm. He presses it. Nothing happens. I guess this isn't an emergency.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Good. <laughs> and then he calls on the phone, the emergency phone, a woman named Marge. So he's like, oh, it's stuck again. This happens. And then he asks her to call Harry. Apparently, Harry is the maintenance guy who would be coming and fixing this. So... Um, Uh, Then we keep cutting back and forth to the others outside the banquet room, wondering where Blair is. Oh no, she's going to miss her speech. And then Tootie, I'm sure much to Matthew's delight, Tootie (laughs) goes into actress mode and is like, I'll go on for her. And Matthew's (laughs) shaking his head, an emphatic no. No. Yes. So as we are in the elevator, Uh, the the long and short of the rest of the episode is because it's a little warm in the elevator, Blair loosens the the bow on her blouse and her collar. He rolls up his sleeves and that's where you see the number
2: tattooed on his arm. And And let me tell you, this is the moment that the episode becomes watchable. Becomes actually fairly good television. Um, uh, She acts it beautifully. Uh, it's pre- it's presented and directed beautifully. Um, it it turns on a dime at that point that, oh, this is suddenly about something real. Um, and have you ever, guys, have you ever met somebody with an arm tattoo, a Holocaust I, survivor? Have, have, I have any not. seen that live? Well, I have I, many over the years. Um, growing up in the New York metro area, and then also I worked in the Catskills in my uh, very late teens and early 20s. Um, uh, during the sort of the the death throes of the Jewish Catskills, I worked at a little place called the Vegetarian Hotel, which is where I first saw them on a fairly regular. basis, it's at least six or seven, and uh, I also worked at Grosinger's uh, Resort, which is a better known resort in its uh, its final years. And um, yeah, it was it was not uncommon. And boy, you do instantly feel extraordinary reverence when when you see someone and you under you you. There's an immediate understanding that this person has been has been through something, you know, mm-hmm. and and to see them at a resort and enjoying themselves and still smiling is kind of wonderful and extraordinary. There's a wonderful documentary out too about um, an old uh, uh, sort of Catskills Jewish bungalow colony that all of these uh that it was populated by Holocaust survivors. They all kind of of found each other and then would summer up there together and just have this community of understanding where they all kind of got each other and uh, on a level in a way that nobody else could. Um, So anyway, this moment in the elevator, I think was like, all of a sudden it's okay. And I'm leaning in and this is television now. This is Mm -hmm. really good. Yeah.
3: I literally have zero notes that I wrote down about the rest of the episode because it was so sobering and it's overwhelming. And I may become emotional through the rest of this because it's just so overwhelming and he is so good Mm -hmm. at, at, at what he's doing and he's so perfect in his deliveries and his storytelling and his, his perseverance speaks. So he, uh, like you said, Steve, you can tell this, this man has been through it. And yeah, I mean, it, it's he, unbelievable. He rings it true. Yep. He
2: absolutely rings it true. You, you, you believe him. You like can I really see... thought
3: I was really watching this thinking if, and I don't think that Emmy award existed back then, but um, the, the guest the, star one, the guest star.
1: Oh, it did, award. it did. And I looked it up and I was like, who in the fuck would have gotten nominated over this performance? And uh, it's funny you bring it up. Here it who is. Was, who
0: was it? <laughs>
1: um, well, the deal is, it was, it was just, I don't know if it's changed right now in, in this uh, Emmy uh, iteration. There's just guest performer in a comedy, and guest performer in a drama. And it's mixed as far as male and female.
3: Uh, So there
1: are five nominations. So this would be in a comedy series. Um, So the one who won it was Roscoe Lee Brown for an episode uh, of The Cosby Show, episode called The Card Game. I met
2: Roscoe Lee Brown a couple of times when I was living in LA. He was a bar fly. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, that's where there were a, a couple of bars uh, over in Burbank near Gary Marshall's Falcon Theater that we used to go to after shows, Roscoe Lee Brown was always there, and he was always tanked. Wow, he was that guy. Was that uh, he liked his booze? Wow, there you go. I apologize to anyone from the Roscoe Lee Brown family, but that <laughs> man drunk.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> we, we've had stories of other celebrities too, mm-hmm. but as we continue down the list, it's Earl Hyman, Danny Kay, Clarice Ooh. Taylor and Stevie Wonder, all from The Cosby Show. Five nominees, all of them are guest spots on The Cosby Show.
3: Wasn't The okay. Cosby Show Danny Kaye's final appearance? That, he, played the, he played the dentist. Correct,
1: yeah. And uh, I believe it was. Well, he did not win that year. It was Roscoe Lee Brown. And, uh-huh. and, I, and I believe of all of, these, uh, of those five nominees, I think Danny Kaye is the only white person. All the rest of them are African-American. Anyway, all of these, I'm sure all of these performances were lovely, but there is no question the performance that uh, Mr. Persoff gives here is every bit as good and every bit as nominatable as any award-winning performance we have seen on television. Just saying that. So uh, I agree with you, Matthew, to suddenly have, like Blair, as there, as us, as the, oh, this is a thing I've heard about. This is a thing I've seen on television referred to and let's get real this show even kind of skirts the issue as far as oh that symbolized blair says i've heard about you know concentration camps but i've never met anyone and she says you survived and he says i was lucky and there's not talk of what he survived or what was going on there that was probably a little bit too much even for the the prime time hour
3: Uh, But but it almost didn't need to be. I mean, it's it's unspeakable almost. You know what? mm -hmm. uh, What? You
2: do learn that he lost his entire family. yes. Yes. You do learn that. So that that that's profound. But other than that, no, they don't get into the nasty nuts and bolts of what life in a concentration camp would be.
1: No. no. And I I did write it down as though I might speak it. But you know what? I'm not going to tell his story here because I want if you're listening to this and you have not watched the episode, you need to watch it. And no. I'm I'm getting emotional now. Wow.
2: What's what's so interesting about this is it's a sitcom. It's supposed to be a comedy show. Yeah. And they are- Shit with the comedy on this—they're awful. Comedy sucks. There's almost not a joke that lands, (laughs) and then it turns, and they do a a a, a real and serious dramatic turn that 100% works. So yeah, it's just it just felt so backwards. It felt like this this is on its Mm. head.
1: That's the Norman Lear influence, where we couldn't do that in sitcoms before Norman Lear, and he's you know one of the developers of this show, but. The, he then goes on to tell a story, not about the concentration camp, but a story that involves his relationship with his brother and basically kind of gives Blair a little bit of a reminder of whatever this plaque means, whatever your aspirations are, don't forget this baby, that this is your sister. Yeah. And, and it's beautifully done. And uh, before we go on, I wanted to ask you, Steve. Now, Steve, you told us in the last show, that you were raised by Bronx Jews. You grew up in New York and New Jersey, and that three yeah. of your four grandparents were Russian immigrants. Did they yeah. see anything? Yeah. What was and, their involvement? And my
2: my one, my father's grandmother was born here, was the first child of her family to be born here. She was the first, first generation in, in her family. And 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 of course, she grew up in in a Home where Yiddish was the first language and English was the second language or whatever. So yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of that. What was your question? I'm sorry, go on.
1: Uh my question is: how did the Holocaust touch your family directly, if at all?
2: Yeah, it did. Um, my maternal grandmother uh had um, I think three siblings that were lost, and certainly all of that that generation, the generation above my parents knew people who were lost, had known people, uh, who were lost. Um, and I would hear about them, but it wasn't, it was so interesting. The Jewish immigrant experience for those generations was largely about putting the bad behind and becoming Americans and assimilate. So all of the Yiddish that was spoken was generally not passed down. It was sort of We'll use it when we don't want the kids to know what we're talking about, um, be the secret yeah. language. But we want them to learn English and we want them to be part of this community, because when we were sort of uh, separate, you know, uh, the, the Jewish community was this separate thing in Germany and separate thing in Austria and in Poland and in Russia. Um it, uh, separate meant different, meant not accepted, meant persecuted. So we don't want that here. We want assimilate. We want to be part. And so it was sort of um, we didn't talk a lot about um, that, the the persecution and that it was it, it wasn't for the kids and the grandkids. We, we don't we don't want them to know this. We want them to know the better. Hmm. So so That's I was nice. I was very aware we certainly got schooling and in hebrew school and different things and my parents would certainly certainly talked about it i was i got a little fascinated in my uh teens and it, it felt like all of the novels i were reading were like nazi related novels like uh the boys from brazil and the odessa file and the marathon man and all of these things that were sort of uh you know uh, it was present day but nazi um yeah. and um but uh so i i'm certainly wickedly aware but mm-hmm one regularly talked about, I guess that's all I'm saying.
3: I became interested in my teenage years as well, because they have talked before, um, while it may have been very inappropriate, um, my fifth grade year, there was a touring Anne Frank exhibit that came through Fort Wayne and my, my, my World War II veteran GI Bill fifth grade teacher thought it would be a good idea to take a group of fifth graders to a very graphic Holocaust exhibit. And it it did spark my interest. And I think made me a little, because of my sensitivity of being a, a, a gay, it struck a chord with me and being half Jewish and knowing that my family somewhere along the line down there is, is, is affected by that. But, um, I started reading books like In the Mouth of the Wolf, which was about um, the Polish ghettos and the Polish, um, which was what um, Majdanek was, a, a Polish um, concentration camp. Because I did a, a big deep dive on on the camp that he mentioned. And, yes,
1: he does mention yeah. uh, it, I, M-A-J-D-A-N-E-K, Majdanek.
2: Don't try to pronounce it. Polish, you'll hurt yourself.
1: Yeah. And it's called that because uh, it's, it was located in Majden. so Majdenik is like little Majden and that's outside the city of Lublin in Poland. And uh, interesting, he says that uh, the reports are that he lost his brother uh, June 18th of 1944. Uh, the camp was captured and closed down on July 22nd that same year.
2: Wow, that was that's- interesting. It future. feels like what the one they they researched the Holocaust stuff. You know what I mean. We, we're not going to research the Palace Hotel stuff or the cheats, yeah. but we they did their work on the Holocaust stuff. So God love them for that. Yeah, that's. that's what, a,
1: I think there uh, might have been a, a Jewish person or two in the writer's room. Can't say for sure. Might have been. But uh, did you finish your story, Matthew? I'm sorry. As far as did it affect your family? What did you? What did your mother's uh, side of the family?
3: No, never discussed. Yeah, I mean even the. I mean, we were in Indiana, so even the whole Jewish thing was hardly ever, I mean, never discussed. So hmm. I, I had to do some digging to find out like, oh, there were there. Well, like my grandma used to say, you shake anybody's family tree, a Jewish woman will fall out of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Has either of you been to a concentration camp? no. No.
2: Hmm. No, I've I'm, never been to Germany. I've never done a tour of Auschwitz or anything like that. I I don't know. I'm afraid. I'm a, know, a, I'm, a, I'm a little scared. Scared of the fields.
1: I will tell you. Yeah. I've I've been to Auschwitz. My college chorus did a concert tour uh, of Soviet Union, Poland, Estonia in 1990. So there is a, there's a museum there at the camp. And they have tours and tour guides who speak different languages and uh, they take you through and they have the rooms with, you know, the big play class window, the rooms with just the mountain of wallets and the, the room with the pile of, of glasses, the, the children's toys and. um, It was. It, it, for for a you know a joyous singing music college students concertory it was it was quite the gut punch that's for sure but I am I'm so glad we did it I'm so glad we went we we walked through the gas chambers we saw the ovens we uh, and you know again and you're like six million lost six what's, million it's
3: and oh. what's interesting David you say you went to Auschwitz Auschwitz itself was mostly destroyed by the time that it was liberated because they knew the Allies were coming. Um Madonic did not get, um, they did not have time to destroy everything. It is the most complete um labor camp that still exists because they didn't have time to destroy every the all the evidence and they didn't have time to destroy the the gas chambers. I've never been to one and I know this sounds silly, I know it sounds ridiculous, but in the documentaries that I've seen I experience flashbacks and I don't know what I don't know what side I was on but when I've seen video of Auschwitz I know where things are it's it I can't explain it I don't I don't know but like there was a specific documentary I remember watching where they were the camera was moving through Auschwitz and um, computer graphics were rebuilding the things that like oh here's a a plot but if this used to be a building and they would you would see the thing rebuild itself with a computer generated building and I remember as the camera turned the corner I was like and that's the way to the gas chambers like I you knew. I can't explain it. It was so weird. I Somewhere in me has been there before. It was familiar to me. Wow. I know that sounds weird and stupid, and I can't that, explain it better. That
1: but. is not stupid. Not at all. That's the thing. It's
2: and, your experience.
1: And, and that's it. And some people who are like, regardless of whether you believe in, you know, multiple lives or, you know, Shirley MacLaine woo-woo stuff, that that could just be... You know, they say everything is vibrations. That could just be vibrations of trauma
3: from your family, from
1: your your ancestors, and that's oh, a little goosebumpy for me. That's,
3: that's November third, nineteen forty three. Eighteen thousand Jews were killed in one day at Madonna. and that's the largest single day massacre of the entire Holocaust. Um, that particular camp that he mentioned is responsible, mm-hmm. was operating for 34 months. 79,000 people were murdered there. 59,000 of them were Polish Jews. In 43? In 43. In the 34 months that it was open. That's, and I just can't wrap my head around that It's,
2: it's tough. Too. And, and Matthew, I know you're half Jewish, but I, I think probably the second largest group uh, was homosexuals, uh, and and then the uh, Romani or gypsies, and then political dissidents. I think oh. it wound up being around thir- 13 million total, right?
3: And don't get okay. me started on the American liberating allied forces, because while um, the, the Jews were um, liberated and released, the gays were left there. Oh. The gays were left in the concentration camps.
1: I did not know that. Wow. I didn't. But I'll tell you, the Auschwitz presentation was very good. In that they would say the the unimaginable atrocities that took place here, this and that, like there was that type of language throughout. It, it wasn't it wasn't an improv actor from Orlando going, "Hey, how you doing today?" I mean, there there it was. Thankfully, it was it was reverent and had appropriate commentary and um, perspective. But there was I believe a film that was shown if I think I, I I don't trust my memory anymore if not, there is a documentary I watched. I thought it might have been there uh, where they show a film, and the point where I had to look away, the point where I couldn't uh was they were using basically a plow to move a pile of bodies yeah that were just flail like it looked like a pile of rag dolls, yeah and that's the
3: showing that video to fifth graders <laughs> oh jesus way. yeah yeah, yeah. Mess and, and, and and
2: and things you can't get from the video would be like the smells the burning Ugh. flesh smells the ash coming out and the feeling of you you're you're wearing the the ash of dead people you know those walking mm. around it's just it is the holocaust is almost incomprehensible it's just so hard to wrap your heads around. It has to be uh, remembered and it has to be treated with the kid gloves that silly old facts of life treated it with. I I mean,
1: yeah, it probably would have been inappropriate for him to be talking about walking down the hallway or how he escaped and that. That's when all is said and done and the episode ends and the credits roll. You really I really personally was just like that was it. That was the way to do it. Yeah. And if you have questions, that if if you're not old enough to understand, that's where you ask some questions. And yeah,
2: uh, and, and they give Nehemiah Persoff's character a story of hope, which is nice too. Yes. I don't want to get into the details of it, but nope. there's a story of hope. Um, and 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 uh, that was a nice way to treat it. I thought, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. It was it was really well done, and yeah, thankfully we end on the good note, the dramatic note, and. Uh, <sighs> yeah he never
2: he says he never met a baby that doesn't like matzo balls
0: <laughs>
2: the joke i wanted blair to say was oh matzo balls what other part of the matzo do you eat
1: oh nice there you go that's your comedy and, and the other thing is to keep the baby from crying because the baby is probably hungry whatever at one point, he does sing, it's up to you, New York, <laughs> New York, and ends it with this tevya like da 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 da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, this, this, this fun little uh, dance at the end that just is so charming and so sweet, and uh, God bless him, and uh, good good for them, good on them in the midst of a rocky season, and even a rocky episode that they... Um they got it and
2: you're alive, Nehemiah. If you're listening to this podcast, we love you. You did an amazing job.
1: You know he is listening. Someone should
2: put it in front of him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Brilliant. Get this to Nehemiah, whoever is out there.
1: Yeah. Someone out there must know Nehemiah. Come on. Come on. Get it to him. Let him listen to it. Ha. <sighs> Okay, so uh, after after all this hilarity talking about concentration camps and all that other fun stuff, uh, let's let's end on a lighter note.
3: Stephen, we were well, you were working at the Catskills at the time, weren't you? Because we always like to talk about the fact that we were watching Facts of Life when this was going on. What was what was Steve Pernick's TV show of the day? in 1986. What was Steve Pernick like rushing? What was appointment television for Steve Pernick?
2: Well, I don't remember the exact years 86. I was really into Saint Elsewhere. That was a show that I just loved in the 80s. It was one of my all time favorites. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, when you were saying who was the guest star, I remember like James Coco winning for his his uh, when he was on Saint Elsewhere Um, and Doris Roberts. uh, so I was a big St. Elsewhere guy I think I was uh, Star Trek Next Gen might have been a little later Quantum Leap uh, 30-something, I was a big 30-something guy In in the 80s too I loved uh, Zwick and Hershkovitz. I thought they were great um,
3: Which so, is interesting because was... you weren't 30-something in the 80s
2: No, I was still 20-something in the 80s I was mm-hmm. 20-something watching 30-something But I always thought it was so moving and wonderful And I remember guest spots on there too Alan King, I don't know if he won But he should have Um, uh, He was just uh, amazing. So, yeah, there were still a lot of old Jews on television in the the, 80s. Uh,
1: Well, thank you, Steve, for doing this again. Thank you for for being our touchstone to uh, this important history that should not be forgotten. And even the facts of life had the wherewithal to know and understand that, huh?
2: You know, I I was going to make the joke. Yeah, thanks for having me watch a Holocaust episode. But... (laughs) sincerely thank you for having me watch that holocaust episode actually really legitimately thank you that was it was totally worth the time and wound up being legitimately moving and legitimately really well done mhm yep he's got to get through the setup the uh, the openers and and the and the bad facts of lifey stuff
1: yeah the clunky sweaty setup to uh, it does pay off it is it is a worthy Uh, a worthy journey to make and again if any uh anyone listening if you haven't watched it this is one we really really uh would love for you to see it's really really worth it
2: you know what's also interesting it was really jewy but wasn't about natalie so that was that's that you're right it wasn't isn't that amazing as jewy as this episode was it wasn't natalie jewy
1: yeah and uh, yes. Oh, and remembering that in the last time you were here, the Molly Pican episode, she was talking about being involved in one of the pogroms back in the First World War in the old country. So right. we're just right. I'm just exposing you to all the happiness of the history
3: of your people, aren't right.
2: I? Yay. What's next? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I will There's say one
3: coming up where where Tootie joins a, a white nationalist group. So I oh. mean maybe you'd like to join us for that
2: i'll be there wow i'll be i'll be there with my yarmulke.
1: yeah (laughs) well on that note we will say of course first you're welcome and then thank you so much steve for being a part of this and i do hope we get you back for maybe just a run-of-the-mill uh non-jewish episode that could totally happen why
2: not in the meantime I know this won't have, this will be airing well after, but happy Yom Kippur, everybody, and I hope you had an easy fast.
1: Yes, and same same to you, sir. Happy Yom Kippur. Uh, smooches, and goodbye. Mwah. All right, bye, guys. And there you have it. That was Steve Pernick. Thanks again to him and to Matthew for their input and insight on the subject matter of this show. It really is a lovely episode, thankfully, by the time you get to the end of it. So, as we said before, I, I really do recommend you watch it if you haven't. Next week, we're going to be watching season seven, episode 19, called Atlantic City. You can watch it for free at dailymotion.com or on Pluto TV. I will post links in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you.
0: Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit FacetheFactsPod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.